this has been the most inspiring thing I've ever seen from our founders in terms of pivoting. This is the time an entrepreneur is proven. Like you will make or break it right now. On this episode of Access and Opportunity, we welcome investor Jesse Draper, founding partner of Halogen Ventures. With Halogen Ventures, Jesse has committed to investing in early stage consumer technology startups that have a woman as a member of the founding team. We will also hear from one of those founders, Esther Crawford, the co-founder and CEO of Squad, an online platform that helps connect people all over the world through screen sharing. In this episode, Jesse and Esther take us on a journey from their very first encounter where Jesse commits to understanding Esther's business plan completely before moving forward, to their individual commitments going into the deal, and finally to their respective shifts in priorities during COVID-19. Come on and join me for the ride. Good afternoon, ladies. It is so great to have you here. We are here with Jesse Draper and Esther Crawford. Jesse is the CEO and founder of Halogen Ventures, and Esther is the CEO and founder of The Squad. So thank you very much, ladies. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You're most welcome. Well, this season, we're talking to investors and entrepreneurs and how they've come together. And we are especially focused on women who have made it their mission with their fund to invest in diverse companies, companies that have been founded by women and or multicultural entrepreneurs and that are working feverishly alongside of us to close this gap that exists in the marketplace with respect to the distribution and allocation of capital to women-owned and multiculturally owned businesses. So, Esther, I want to actually get started with you because our listeners have not heard from you before. So tell us a little bit about the squad. How did it come to be? Give us a little bit of your background. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how and when you met Jesse. Sure. Um, so I'll just go ahead and, and share a bit about what squad is before jumping into my story. Um, Squad lets you video chat and have shared experiences together. And so what that practically means is you can see each other while you watch movies, TV shows, TikToks, YouTube, stuff like that. Um, you can also screen share and, and browse from any app. So for more practical things like shopping or travel planning or doing homework together. I grew up in a small town in Oregon where I really deeply struggled with a sense of belonging on a lot of different fronts. As a teen in the late 90s, uh, the internet was still really new and wasn't really regulated by our church yet. And so I was gifted a computer and I got on to AOL chat rooms and I started making friends with people from all over the world. And that experience completely changed my life. and. It's really the reason I became so passionate about consumer social products, because I saw in my own experience that these connections could be just as real and impactful as the relationships that people create and manage in person. Um, I got my master's degree in international relations, but while I was in college, I had built this blog and a following, and I discovered YouTube when it was a really small little site. and. Um, started getting millions of views on my videos, and that ultimately changed my career trajectory because 
I was one of the first people to land a really genuine uh, sponsorship deal. So it was a six-figure sponsorship with Weight Watchers. And I saw that the world of marketing and advertising was on the verge of this radical shift and I wanted to be part of it. And so out of my house in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I managed to build my own agency that helped uh, Fortune 500 brands define and create what we would eventually call influencer marketing campaigns. And I did that really successfully for four years. Although it was super lucrative, I started to get this itch to not just market other people's products, but also to be involved in creating or building the next platform itself. And uh, I knew that, okay, all of these social networks that I've been on have all been based in Silicon Valley. They're backed by venture capitalists, but I didn't have any connection to tech Uh or to VCs. And uh, so I had to start educating myself um, about how, how that world worked. And then I took a leap of faith and moved to San Francisco, just basically believing I could figure it out once I got here. Um, So I spent several years working for Series A startups in product marketing roles and then started Squad a few years ago with this vision of building a social company that really solved for the problem of loneliness. Um, Because that's something I always believed that the internet was uniquely sort of suited to do. It's what helped me when I was younger and more isolated. And so that is kind of like the background story of Squad. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your fundraising journey because I'm going to go right into your intersection with with Jesse. So let's talk about it. Never raised money before. Obviously had a successful company, successful following. You learned on somebody else's dime, which I always advise people to do by actually leveraging your strength, going to work in startups, finding out how they did what they did, being able to put their product out there, using digital and social media as, as a tool. So how did you start to actually put yourself in front of VCs and what was that experience like early on? Yeah, so our first investor was Betaworks, and we got accepted into their Beta Camp program, which is a startup accelerator that's focused on funding frontier tech startups. I met a couple of the partners at an event, and I had built a weekend project that they were able to actually play with. I had gotten some press around it. They could see that I was scrappy, thoughtful. I had some product chops. Um, They got to like know me just a little bit in person. And so I think that is actually what really helped sell them on investing in us. I don't know that had we just applied sight unseen and and they hadn't actually been able to play with anything we had made that we would have ended up being a company that they invested in. Okay. So now, how did you meet Jesse? So I met Jesse through a partner at Betaworks. Um, Matt Hartman suggested that I meet Jesse and he said, hey, there's this woman out in LA. She has a fund. It's focused on women, but she herself really understands consumer social. She totally understands the media landscape. I think she's going to really resonate with you. You know, your product may change or morph over time, but like she's somebody who I think you could work with. And so that's how the introduction got made to Jesse. It was through Matt. Jesse, can you tell us a little bit about Halogen Ventures? Uh, you are fourth generation VC, and what made you uh, decide that you were going to focus on women-owned businesses? So yeah, no, I run Halogen Ventures. We invest in early stage female-founded consumer technologies, and 
That's because, you know, I grew up, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a fourth generation investor and I grew up in Silicon Valley around incredible men in technology. And I didn't think I could go into tech, even though that's all I knew. And so I went into entertainment because my aunt was an actress and she was a very successful actress on a show called 30 something in the eighties. And I was like, oh, well that's what women do because my mom worked incredibly hard taking care of four children, um, but I didn't know what a traditional job for a woman looked like. And while my dad was incredibly open and generous with education, I still only saw men around me. So I ended up combining these two worlds and created a technology talk show. It was the first. Now there's many, um, but it really was the first because I had the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt on and nobody cared. (laughs) Nobody cared. Um, And I was like, no, this is a big deal. But it was in 2008. People were just figuring it out. Ultimately, I worked with Forbes, Mashable, numerous other distributors. And uh, in the early days of digital distribution, we took it to TV. We were nominated for an Emmy. But after we did five seasons of the show. And after the first two seasons, I realized I'd only interviewed men in technology. And I was very frustrated by this. So I launched this series called Rockin' Women. And I still remember who these Rockin' Women were. And I did a whole week of women. And then after that, made an initiative to interview 50% women in tech. And those women in 2008, 2009 were Sheryl Sandberg, uh, Julia Hartz from Eventbrite, which is now pu- a public yeah, company sure. and had just started. Uh, Beth Cross from Ariat, and um, quite a few others that were fantastic. And I'm forever grateful to them because it, that changed my life a little bit. I started getting pitched to just women. It was like this bat signal. And women started pitching me to be on the show. Sometimes I'd say, you're too early for the show. Love what you're doing. I don't have a ton of cash, but can I write you like a tiny check, like $1,000, $5,000, or negotiate some sweat equity and get you media exposure? Some of those deals ended up doing really well for me. And one I sold for a 25X return in less than 18 months on the secondary market. Wow. Um, Go, Jess. One's now uh, Carbon38, which is an international athleisure marketplace that's doing really well. People are buying a lot of leggings right now, by the way, at home. Um, And uh, so those deals did really well for us. I say us because now I have a team and we kind of like have put everything under the halogen umbrella and then um, raised fund one. um, And now we're on fund two. And um, so that's kind of how it all came to be. And we, you know, I realized that women needed two things in order for the future little girls to not think they could not go into technology. And one was media exposure for these incredible women in tech. And two um, was funding. Excellent. Now, what made you say, okay, I want to know more. What does she do? How does she present herself? You know, what did you think? Or did you get the reverse introduction from Matt also? So, um, She had, I had, yes, he, I mean, Matt suggested, he gave her a glowing recommendation and I think Betaworks has a great program over there. And I actually remember my first, we were connected over email and I remember my first conversation with her, uh, I was like at an airport or something. And I remember like walking in circles over and over and being like, wow, this is really cool. And she had a real vision. And, um, you know, as with any startup, like she was 
headed towards creating a different type of technology. And she's pivoted a couple times as a good founder does because um, you can't, I always say like, if you keep going in one direction, you will just run into a wall and it means you're not listening to <laughs> anyone, your users, your, ah. uh, you know, you're not listening to the feedback. And um, she's done such a great job leading this and taking it to heights I never anticipated. As an investor, I am an early investor. Often we're some of the first institutional money in at Halogen Ventures. And so we stay very close with incubators and accelerators like Betaworks and Techstars. And um, Matt at Betaworks is fantastic. How did you communicate to her what you were looking for? Because that's one of the, the tricky first conversations is that the the company is trying to figure out what you care about so they can present that to you. You're trying to sometimes be, if you're, you know, one of those great, great VCs who will give it to you straight, no chaser. Others are a little bit more careful about telling you what they're looking for because they don't want the company to tailor the conversation. So how did you navigate that? What did you tell her was important? You know, I think I told her I wanted to make sure that she had a really great vision and I wanted to fully understand her plan and what she was building. What sold me was I talked to her about, you know, well, where could this go? And it went from this sort of like social media bot to audio technology to being able to like talk to your walls and tell them to take notes for you and things that you'd only seen in movies. And those are the ideas I gravitate towards where I'm... I can't even imagine it. And it's so far in the future, but, um, those are the big ideas. And uh, I remember then we had our first meeting cause you never want to invest in anyone without actually meeting them in person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I brought one of my investors actually, because I, I ah. wanted like some more, um, ears and we left and we were just blown away. And so we wrote our, our first check. As you were negotiating your, your first investment in Squad, were there any diverging views between the two of you on, you know, because usually the investor has a much more conservative view of what, what the future looks like than the entrepreneur, or are there things that are must-haves for you as an investor that they may or may not want to, to give up? Yeah, no, we're always looking for, um, we're trying to, we try to be really thoughtful. And I think if you break down terms for any investor, it's like, how can I own the most for the smallest check, at least in early stage. And so you're looking right. to own the biggest chunk of equity you possibly can. Um, and then you want to negotiate great rights. We have a whole bunch of things we ask for that are non-traditional and we're constantly changing that. And that's things like, you know, we have a couple of fashion companies and we wanted to make sure we got some free products. So we work things like that, like as basic as that into our deals all the way to, um, you know, making sure that we can continue to put in our pro rata stake to maintain the ownership we originally bought with our investment. And then, you know, there's a lot of different types of follow on funding rights. And it depends what type of investor in Esther's deal, her original deal, we didn't lead. We do lead a lot, um, in which case you have the rights and set the terms so you can ask for a lot more. But we'll ask all the way mm -hmm. to, you know, we have protections for, you know, if someone goes through an ICO on the blockchain, all the way to, yes. you know, getting free purses. Understood. Understood. Now, Esther, as you and I were talking about a couple of minutes ago, uh, at the end of the day, 
it is just as important to you as the entrepreneur who comes in because, you know, as you well know, Jesse, all money is not created equal. And one of the things that we were talking about is that if you agree with the thesis, and I think all of us on this podcast do, that it's a little bit more difficult for women and multicultural entrepreneurs to access capital, especially traditional venture capital, then you have to also agree with the thesis that if it's harder to access then the process, i.e. the questions that people ask during due diligence, the discernment that they apply to your company, uh, the way they look at your company and the opportunity may be different than the way they view, quote, traditional investments. So therefore, if it's going to be that much more difficult and all money is not created equal, there's an argument that says the entrepreneur should also be a little discriminating about the money that they take. Uh, even though you and I both know that's not always the case, because if you're running out of cash, you're running out of cash. And at that point, it all looks green. But what was it about Jesse in Halogen Ventures that made you comfortable, excited, and more than willing to put them in your cap table, Esther? I actually think that first meeting where she brought one of her LPs, it was so striking to me. Uh, it's the only meeting where that's ever happened. And I've probably wow. taken a hundred meetings with different investors. So that one actually does stand out. A lot of meetings with investors do not stand out and they all kind of like gel together first meetings do. But in that case, it did. It was really interesting to see the person and the thought behind her fund. And it was like one of the first times where I started to think about the LPs that we were making money for. And you know, wow. you get so you get so caught up, I think, as a as a first time entrepreneur, when you first go out to to raise money, you're so nervous, at least for me, I was so nervous about being judged. And how am I going to, um, you know, get people across the line? And but but really, the next thought should really be, who am I making more rich and more powerful in the world? And it's not just the investors themselves. It's not just Jesse. It's actually all of the people on her cap table, all the people mm -hmm. she's raised money from. Um, and so having a view and a lens into the philosophies and ideas and sort of motivations of the LPs themselves was is really an interesting view. And anyways, in this particular case, I was like, wow, you know, not only is Jesse incredibly smart and thoughtful, but here I also get a view into her investors. And I, mm -hmm. it's the same all sort of like, you know, all the way down the line. And so that was one of the things that really stood out to me. And what would you say to a prospective company today about how they should decide whether or not they're going to say yes to someone's offer of money? I think it really is a judgment call. There's a lot of, uh, do you want to work with this person closely when things go wrong, which things inevitably probably will go wrong? Is this someone who you believe will have your back? Um, we've had, like Jesse alluded to, you know, we we pivoted the company really hard about 18 months ago from our first initial product to where we ended up landing with Squad. Can you talk about that pivot? It was from X to Y. What, what yeah. was X? What was Y? Yeah. So we when we first started the company, uh, it was a social company, same underlying vision around loneliness. But the first product was called Molly and it was uh, an AI persona. So effectively, you could kind of me message with somebody who wasn't there. And we spent 18 months working on it, built out some incredible NLP technology, but we weren't seeing consumer adoption. And we realized we were 
many years away in terms of some of the breakthroughs that needed to continue happening in the AI space that we thought would happen that just didn't. Mm -hmm. And with the time horizon we had left, it was clear we weren't going to be the company to solve that problem. And so we were in like the trough of sorrow, really. And all of the sort of initial positive signals weren't there anymore. And I had to go back and talk to all of our investors individually and say like this thing that I promised was going to work and I believed in is not working. And most of our investors were like, hey, I, I believe in you. I Whatever it is that you pivot into, I'm going to support you 110%. But we did have a couple of people who were kind of ghosted us. Yeah. So that experience actually taught me the like importance of the people behind, you know, behind you. Um, that's one piece of it. The other thing, like I said, is just really, do you have value alignment with your investors? Because in particular, when things are challenging, and sometimes even when things are really great, mm -hmm. they're going to push you in certain directions. They're going to pressure you in different ways, right? And so having value alignment is so important and so critical. And I think that the only way you can kind of do that is if you get to know somebody and spend some time with them. And often the fundraising process is is such a difficult, it's, it's like a compressed dating time period. And so it's like, you have to try to get as much signal as possible as an entrepreneur about the investors. And one of the best ways to do that is just talk to people who they invested in, whose companies totally failed. <laughs> Ah, thank you so much for saying that, Esther, because I was going to ask you, because in my view, that was a clear playbook point. And we try to put a playbook out in the marketplace for, for folks who are like you, who are listening to sort of figure out how can I do this? Esther did it. And that's a key point because you said value alignment. I was thinking to myself, okay, how do you get that? And then you said, well, you have to get it really quickly because it's a compressed period of time. And, you know, I might also offer that perhaps before you get into this dating process, you think about the things that you care about as an entrepreneur and have two or three questions that you know you can ask a prospective investor that will give you some insight into whether or not their values align with yours. As you're, so I, you should prepare to interview them as well. Yeah, definitely. Right? Now, before I talk about the environment that we're in now, which I think is going to be really critical for both of you, especially given what Squad is all about, let me ask you, Jesse, because you also mentioned this point about pivoting, and you said every good founder uh, should pivot because it, it says that they are listening to the feedback. But can you give us a little bit more color around what you've seen? Because you are one of the few investors that are, that are out there, pre-seed, seed, and series A. So you... I presume have seen this a lot. So talk to us a little bit about that and what you expect from prospective companies and their pivot, because my experience has been most founders are afraid to pivot mm -hmm. because they think that it's sending the signal that they were not committed to what their business was all about. So help them out. Yeah. I mean, I think Esther spoke about this so eloquently, you know, you need to realize like the fact that she realized that she needed to change something because it wasn't working. And she went to everyone and said, look, it's not working. So we're going to try this. That is huge. And the majority of founders I see don't think that way. And I think the biggest curse of a founder is if you ever were, we always try to identify this early in weird ways. We throw founders curveballs and ask them crazy questions and try to get them thinking on their feet. Like, well, what if this happened? Well, what if all of the trees were cut down and you couldn't, you know, cultivate your almonds from there, whatever. I don't know. Um, and uh, we, 
we try to mix it up and see if they'll kind of roll with all, all of our crazy ideas because the founders who think that they are the smartest people in the room, you know, I would never claim to be the smartest person in the room. I don't think that anyone else should claim to be the smartest person in the room. I can learn from all of you. You can learn from me. Um, and that's just the way I believe founders should be. They should hear all of the feedback from their users, from their investors, from their advisors, and they should uh, they are the filter. They need a vision, but they also need to be able to hear what people are saying and understand when it's not working. Because I've seen far too many times, you know, these founders will just run into a wall literally because they'll be like, no, it's working. It's working. I'm like, okay, you talk to 200 people. Let's talk to 5,000 people and see if it's working because something, I don't, think it's working. And I've seen something like this before and it didn't work. So I think we might need to pivot. And this moment right now, which you were mentioning, we were going to get to, but I'm there. <laughs> um, yes. This moment right now. Let's go there. With COVID, this has been the most inspiring thing I've ever seen from our founders mm -hmm. in terms of pivoting. We've seen incredible businesses and whole industries like transferred online in a matter of days. We've seen new product launches done with new manufacturers because they manufactured in China and they had to find one locally. And we have seen the most incredible things happen. This is the time an entrepreneur is proven. Like you ah. will make or break it right now. Like can your business sustain? I'm laughing in a kind way when my founders right now are calling me saying, but Jesse, we're hitting our growth numbers and we're hitting this. And I'm like, no one cares about your growth numbers right now. People just care that you're going to survive through January and through this pandemic. And then you will be mm -hmm. 10 times stronger than any other company that had to start over. Um, this is just, it's such an inspiring time. And um, entrepreneurs are being more creative than I've ever seen them be. Wow. You, you are my kind of girl, Jesse. I am a glass half full kind of girl as well. And I see, you know, notwithstanding the pain that we are all feeling and the, you know, the trauma that folks are going through, uh, I still do see this as an, an opportunity that, that we can work ourselves through because we are resilient people. Now, as you think about it as an investor, what's your priority? right now. Are you thinking about that the cash that you do have, the dry powder actually going to your portfolio companies, or are you still in the business of looking for new opportunities? And are you thinking about the opportunities that will be created that don't exist today on the other side of this? You know, it's such a good question. And it's such a tough time as you're mentioning, you know, we, while I am seeing such great innovation, and this is the opportunity for innovation, there is a lot of pain, as you mentioned. And, you know, we've seen layoffs of our 62 portfolio companies ranging from one to 60 employees. Um, week wow. one, we saw companies taking a 90% hit in travel and some other particular industries, events related, etc. And so, you know, this is a tough time. Um, we were in the process of doing some new deals and we pushed pause, which also is very difficult to talk to a founder who thinks sure. they're getting a check. And we basically said, okay, let's look at our portfolio and see who needs support and who needs help and who makes sense to make an investment in right now. And so we've been evaluating a few different things, but if I was going to make it super simple, I would say, one, can the founder execute based on our experience with them? Two, do they have runway through January? <laughs> and three, 
is it COVID sustainable? <laughs> um, yeah, and honestly, yeah. it was like, it, it, you know, to have put so much thought into my investment strategy over the years, this through even all investors for a loop, you know, and I've been studying the 2008 recession and seeing what Sequoia did and all of these um, investors to see how they got through it and how their companies got through it. And when you look back, that's when Uber was started, Slack was started, all of the most incredible technology companies today and the largest were started in 2008, mm -hmm. Dropbox. Um, and so I think there's huge opportunity now. Uh, it's just about getting through these rough months. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that the government's stepping in with these SBA loans. Those have been so helpful for a lot of our companies. And uh, because it's just like a hit you didn't plan for. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you keep saying, I want to make sure they have enough cash until January. So you're not even seeing, you're, you've sort of wiped out the rest of 2020. You're saying the next big fundraising season and the best fundraising seasons for companies like Squad is always the first quarter into the early second quarter. That's just sort of, you know, VC 101, I suppose. And so you're saying I, you got to make it to January and not be on the edge so that you can take advantage of this. You're not thinking about anything in the rest of this year. Is that fair? Yes, that is fair. And that's just based on what we're seeing in terms of schools being closed till fall. And then mm -hmm. also, if you know a fundraise, if you've been through a fundraising cycle or two, um, first of all, if you're Esther from Squad, she's really good at fundraising. So she could do it really quickly. If you know you are really good at fundraising and you can close it fast, great. You can probably go out and raise in the fall. But when I look at the fall, it's like people in the summer, investors in the summer, just, it's hard to pin them down. Everybody's all over the place. Mm -hmm. And so, but now they're all home, you know, exactly where they are. <laughs> now they're all home. They're available <laughs> right now. But Esther, they're home fretting. <laughs> they're not on the beach. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. Um, but, uh, you you hit September running, you know, you just have to like start fundraising and then you have basically through the first week in November and then everything shuts down through January. So I think we're just yes. saying as far as safety, let's just like make sure you have enough cash through January. If something magical happens, fantastic. But um, that's what we're uh, planning for. Understood. And Esther, let's talk about how Squad has been impacted. Yeah, so we're one of those companies where uh, our growth has just been off the charts. The first two weeks of, of March, we grew at 54%. This is just like pre-COVID, pre pre-quarantine. The last two weeks of March, we grew 1,100%. So that just kind of like gives wow. you a sense of the scope of change um, that we've experienced. And it's created all kinds of new challenges around scaling, suddenly dealing with the level of concurrency of usage we never uh, had experienced before. But if you're a video chat app that allows people to hang out together, watch movies, TV shows, all the things people want to do but can't do in person, you know, it just like this is really the moment for our company to shine. Sure and yeah. so we've just been taking advantage of it. Wow. What about being in a position from a personnel standpoint? It sounds like you're in a good position from a cash perspective. But one of the things that I have often seen and that I certainly saw as my during my time as chair of the National Women's Business Council, there were great opportunities uh, that women did not take advantage of during the financial services crisis because they thought, you know, I should hold on to my cash. And then when things opened up, they weren't in a position to take advantage of how fast things were going. So have you been sort of thinking about 
about that along with Jesse's help. Be prepared. You're already seeing it, but you can imagine what it's going to be on the other side of this as people's appetite for this kind of hanging out has grown, right? Folks didn't even know they could do it this way. Now they want to do it this way. Are you, do you have what you need from a people standpoint? Uh, so we had frozen hiring at the very beginning of the quarantine, not knowing what we should expect or how long it should go on. But we just reopened hiring last week mm-hmm. and we have brought on um, a couple of new engineers to take advantage of it. We've managed to go out and raise a couple million dollars from our current investors to help get us through just without having to think about our our next round immediately so that we can instead focus on enabling the growth, um, getting users in, having stability of the platform, all of those things that are really important and critical for the, for the company to thrive during this period. And so I am very much a like go for it kind of person. That's just my natural <laughs> inclination. And uh, I feel like that's what we're doing. It's just go time. And so it's full on at squad every day. And our team is so motivated and excited by the opportunity that we've been given to really help people stay connected with each other. And so we get all these messages every day from users who are you know, thanking us for letting them stay connected to their boyfriend or girlfriend or their best wow. friends or their family and those are the kinds of things that like just drive us to want to continue doing this as as uh as well as we can so i hope you're putting those testimonials on your website or in your instagram chats you know anonymous but every day the kinds of things that you're hearing from people that that's pretty powerful yeah i think yeah thank you sure well, ladies, I, I could go on and on in this conversation, but I recognize uh, that we promised you a finite amount of time. We have started uh, a tradition with Access and Opportunity where we do a little bit of a lightning round so that our listeners get an opportunity to hear who you are from a personal standpoint. So I'm going to ask each of you five questions and you quickly answer in rapid fire. And Jesse, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Which would you prefer, reading a book or binge watching television? Oh, reading a book. Adventure or relaxation? Adventure. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee, coffee, coffee. Coffee. (laughs) Well, you saw what I was doing during this. (laughs) I could not agree more. Email or phone call? Squad call. All right. There you go. There you go. Good answer. Excellent. All right, Esther. Here, Here we go. Reading a book or binge watching? Binge watching. Adventure or relaxation? Adventure. Coffee or tea? Uh, the only, I don't drink coffee, but, uh, the only tea I'll drink is my grandma's iced tea. Oh, okay. Is she from the South? She is, Oklahoma. So it must be sweet tea, honey. It's very sweet tea, yes. (laughs) A full cup of sugar. I'm from the South, so I'm with your grandma. I got it, I got it. Email or phone call? Squad call. Okay. All righty. Well, ladies, I could not be more grateful, and I know our listeners are going to be grateful. This has been outstanding. Thank you, thank you, thank you for spending some time with us on Morgan Stanley's Access and Opportunity. Thank you. It was so fun. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Excellent. All righty. Take care, stay safe, and stay well. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Access and Opportunity. In our next episode, We'll be joined by investor Soraya Darabi, founder and general partner at Trail Mix Ventures and entrepreneur Sarah Sheehan, the co-founder and COO of Bravely. You won't want to miss it. Please remember to share your thoughts and feedback with us at carlapod at morganstanley.com. I can't wait to hear from you.